how do you do sacred music in secular settings? And we'll have a discussion with Dr. Aaron Plisko from Missouri State University. And our composer profile is on Antonio Vivaldi. This is Early Music Monday. So the other day I was watching YouTube, as you do, and I came across this video of Batman and Robin from like 19, before I was born, like 70 something, 60 something, and it had all of Robin's little catchphrases, like back to back for five straight minutes. It was hysterical. Holy litigation, Batman. Holy algorithm, Batman. That definitely wasn't one of them. Algorithm is definitely a 2020 word. (laughs) Uh, But holy murder. (laughs) Just like he just goes on and on and on of all these like ridiculous things. Holy speedboat, Batman. Holy peanut butter, Batman. We're in a jam. And as I was doing research for this episode and reading some legal jargon in this uh, article that I'll mention later. That's all I could think of was just like, holy dense over my head, Batman. Holy, I should have gone to law school, Batman. You know, just like his phrases kept coming to my head for like a whole day. Teaching choir that day was like, holy out of tune triads, Batman. So the next time you need a good catchphrase, just say whatever's happening, but put holy in front of it. And then Batman at the end. That being said, holy music in school or in other kind of public secular settings can be sometimes a tricky thing. I live in Utah and sacred music is part of our culture really heavily. So while I don't necessarily turn, you know, the choir program into a sacred music program, we don't necessarily shy away from sacred music. And a little bit later, I'll talk about how we do it um, in a public school setting to make it legit and not weird or uncomfortable. And I think it comes across okay. I have had several occasions with teaching students who are particularly non-religious or atheist or things like that or of different faith backgrounds who never said anything and they really loved the music they would come up and say how much they particularly loved that piece so there's ways to do it and there's some references and resources that we can talk about as well so to start the kind of baseline go-to article that i would definitely download is this article entitled the constitutionality of teaching and performing sacred music in public schools and the the lady who wrote it is a lawyer and her name is faith kasparian i did not make that up her name is faith and she wrote an article called the constitutionality of teaching sacred music in schools holy irony batman and this article is like freaking long and really dense 
I, I, it was, I felt like I was, it's like a workout. I started sweating as I read it and like had to take a break and rest my eyes and my brain. But she kind of breaks it down into three parts. And the first part, I'll just quote her. Part one of this note illustrates the widespread public confusion over what is permissible activity in public schools depicts the chilling effect that results from such confusion and explains the danger of such a chilling effect by articulating pedagogical justifications for teaching and performing sacred choral music in public schools. Holy run-on sentence, Batman. But that's actually kind of the coolest part, in my opinion, is is part one. Uh, just goes over... Like we, why we're so confused about it? Because you know, we, you know, separation of church and state is a good thing, and we want to make sure that we're not making singers or audience members uncomfortable. But you know, there's so much great music out there that can be performed. How do we do it? Um, part two gets a little bit more, you know, technical legal jargon. Discusses the Establishment Clause precedent, and proposes, quote, an analytical framework for evaluating the Establishment Clause ramifications of teaching and performing sacred choral music in public schools. Using this framework, as well as Supreme Court and lower court precedent, Part 3 considers, through three hypothetical fact patterns, the constitutionality of using sacred choral music in varying public school contexts whoa i'm like out of breath um but so part two is really dense i it was a struggle but part three then gives some hypothetical scenarios which are really good to kind of talk about how you can go about incorporating this in so if you're really looking for kind of some research to kind of back up your reasoning for doing a particular sacred piece in school um, this is a really good reference because you can point to specific things in the law that, that you can use in your defense if anybody ever kind of gives you clout about it or uh, gives you crap about it. Um, like I said before, though, I don't, I don't shy away from doing sacred music in school. Now, so I will say I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS for short. We used to be called Mormons. And, uh, like, a vast majority of people in my state of Utah are of of similar faith background. And so while I have no problem doing sacred music as an educator, I actually also don't do... I don't think I have ever done, maybe once, but it was kind of more obscure. I don't think, I've never done a piece of music that is specific to my own faith. So that's the first thing that I do personally. And I have a lot of reasons for that, because my own personal relationship with my faith and my faith music that that music has a very specific place in my 
life and role in my life and doing it educationally doesn't sit well with me, first of all. And second of all is I know that a lot of students who aren't of the the norm, I guess, faith tradition of kind of this area, they feel uncomfortable enough sometimes not being, you know, kind of being in the minority of faith traditions. So then it kind of doubles that uncomfortableness for them. And I have a extreme amount of like holy envy for the music of other faith traditions <laughs> like Anglican music for example and Catholic music for example and I love Jewish music African American spirituals I think that there are some really amazing um, African uh, like tribal music that I got to perform and, and listen to when I was on tour in Ghana uh, with BYU-Idaho. So I, I there's just so much other music that my students are not typically exposed to and would not be familiar with that I happen to have a great passion for. To so So luckily I can come at it with this kind of respectful, well, this is their faith tradition. If we even get that far, sometimes we just spend so much time getting the music itself right that we don't get to that level of musicianship. Um, but we do Catholic and Anglican music all the time. Anyway, there are resources. So that article by Faith Kasparian, and there's a couple other articles that I will put in the blog on soundofagesquire.com that you can reference and use to talk about um, kind of doing sacred music in school. Because it's such a rich part of choral music's history, um, That and, and really all music genres from all regions of the planet are influenced by their faith traditions when you go and look back in history, um, to some extent, Eastern, Middle Eastern music, uh, Far Eastern music, Russian music, African music, South American music, it's all, it all comes from kind of this sacred place in, in historical context. And then, you know, as it goes forward, it kind of changes and it comes together with secular music and it gets kind of intermingled. And so to really understand our music, it's really important not to lose sacred music from the past, no matter what culture of music that you're drawing upon. Okay, so next we're going to turn to our interview with Dr. Aaron Plisko. She is a professor at Missouri State University. She conducts the women's chorus there. And she has a really unique perspective because she did graduate degrees at both Trinity College Choir or Trinity College in Cambridge and at East Carolina University and and um, U of A, University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, here in the United States. So she has this really cool, um, perspective of having been in 
the choral program both in America and in England. And she has some really fantastic uh, things to say, and she is a brilliant conductor. So we turn now to Dr. Aaron Plisko. Okay, welcome Aaron Plisko to the podcast. I appreciate you coming on. Um, as we were just talking about before, the legendary stories of Aaron, the Aaron Plisko and the adventures. Um, I, I heard stories about you and about kind of your path in your career to music and your studies uh, from Dr. Crane when I was a student before I had even met you. And I would love for you to just kind of talk through like what made you interested in being a choral conductor, a professor, what path did you take, your time in England and, and so forth. Cool. Like right now? Yeah, go for it. Oh, okay, I'll go. Um, so I think like a lot of people, um, I got really hooked when I was in high school. Um, I joined high school choir. We, we got a new um, director my sophomore year. And, you know, he programmed what I then thought was like crazy and terrible, the Eric Whitaker Cloudburst. Nice. <laughs> this is weird music. What is this? Um, but then after a couple of weeks, I was just absolutely hooked. And that was kind of like the beginning of the end, my sophomore year of high school. Um, and, you know, by my senior year, I realized that I couldn't do anything else with my life. Um, so I went to a small liberal, liberal arts school because um, I still wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with music. Um, so I double majored in music education and vocal performance. Um, I fancied myself as you know, going the opera route at some point. Yeah. Thought I was going to be a star. Um, yeah. That didn't last very long. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Reality set in. And I was like, oh, everyone's a soprano and everyone's great. Um, oh, so. the, the hard emotional day when you have to have. <laughs> I also realized that I liked being the one in control of the, mm. the music. Um, right. I liked, you know, calling the shots. And as that became more and more clear, um, and as I realized that I, I loved making music at a high level, um, I realized the path, I guess the path became clear. Yeah. Um, so I got a teaching job at a high school in North Carolina out of undergrad. It was like a five-year thing with uh, the Masters of Arts and Teaching kind of slapped on at the end. Oh, cool. So I, I graduated with a master's degree and a teaching license. So I got a job at this big program and everyone was shocked because I was like 22 or 23 and I looked like nice. a student. Um, and you know that first year was like the worst year of my life but then after that um, <laughs> it was incredible um, <clears throat> and I learned a lot but you know going into like my third year um, after having these incredible summer experiences at various workshops and stuff I realized um, you know I wasn't getting out of it quite what I what I wanted. Um, also public education just comes with so much extra baggage. And I, you know, wasn't, I wasn't into that. Right. Um, so I applied at all the master's programs in the US and applied for this program at Cambridge on a whim. It was fairly new at the time, the MMUS, this like hybrid performance research degree. Mm -hmm. um, and I applied for that Gates Cambridge scholarship and I was like, oh, I'm never gonna get it. Right, and, right. You know, but why not? You know, it doesn't yeah. hurt. Um, and then, you know, over a series of several months, I was accepted into the various like colleges and universities. Then I, I received an interview for that uh, fellowship and then I got it. 
and this is like February, I was in the midst of, a of auditioning and all these master programs. Um, and I hadn't planned on this happening. Right. It wasn't like in my life plan, my super OCD plan. Um, right. But I was like, this is a free ride to Cambridge. Like, yeah, that's I'm amazing. Gonna just drop everything. And I, have, I had no idea what was going to happen on the other end because uh, <laughs> it didn't lead tidily into anything, but I didn't care. I just right. tossed everything up and went. And Not it was the best. Yeah, it was, it was the most amazing time of my life. Um, and, and then, you know, as, as time progressed, it became more and more clear where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And I ended up at the University of Arizona getting a doctorate because I knew that was like, you know, you need that piece of paper to, right. to you know, teach at the <laughs> university level. Um, and it was also amazing. I met my husband at the, my now husband at the University of Arizona. Um, Kismet. learned a lot yeah. what kismet just yes kismet. exactly um and yeah now i'm here at missouri state this that's is amazing how many jobs i mean i'm sure a lot of people who are interested in becoming university music professors but how many job like what was the process then applying <clears throat> for the job you have now like how many jobs do you apply for how many years was it after your doctorate um hmm. Yeah, so I was in my third year, I was still um, like taking classes. I was on campus um, because of my, I had a, my assistantship with the University of Arizona was, was pretty time consuming. So yeah. I kind of faced things out over the three years just because I could. Um, yeah. So it was the beginning of that third year um, where I was taking my comps and everything that I applied for jobs. I probably applied for, I don't know at least 20 positions it might have been more it's it's hard to say at this point they all kind of bleed together right sure sure um, there, there were so many that I never heard anything back from um I was just like you know on a rip and I was like I'm just gonna send them out because I have all my materials and why not right. um you do right like that's what that's what everyone who takes the university track says you just like okay yeah. just like you have to because go it's so competitive and you have no way of knowing exactly what a search committee is looking for because it just depends on those people and the institution. Um, right. So and I probably had even like what and that year, like what was the faculty member like before you exactly. and all kinds yeah, of crazy stuff. So many variables um, that you just can't really control. Um, so I, of the, millions of applications I sent out, I probably had maybe like eight or 10 phone or Skype interviews. Yeah. Um, which felt like a lot to me at the time, mostly because they were so awkward when I did them. <laughs> <laughs> Zoom thing, uh, you know, before. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, it was, I was, it was a first, I suppose. And I'm sure. um, looking back, I, I can now see like, you know, how, those interviews really set people apart who have experience and who don't. Um, but then from all those, I had um, a couple on-campus interviews, one of which was Missouri State. Um, awesome. And they were in um, they were in a hurry. They wanted to, to get the position locked down. Um, so I was out here that February and probably a week after my interview, they called and offered the job and they were like, we really want you, please say yes right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And I I've just absolutely loved it here. 
So. That's great. Oh, that's so awesome. What a fantastic, oh man, I have so many questions too. So what about, um, so I guess, well, okay. You can like budget my time. Anyway, because I could go off probably on the wrong thing for a while here. But what about, um, what are some things that you learned from Trinity? Well, I guess just, let's just open that can of worms. When you were at Trinity College in Cambridge, um, I'd just love for you to just spill everything you can think of in terms of what is your perspective in higher education or in the perspective of choral music in general or of how it plays in society or repertoire of the, the concept of tone, the sound world, whatever, like the differences that you saw when you were at Trinity versus when you were at um, uh, U of A? Oh, I mean, there are so many differences. Um, right. You know, the, the, the university system over there is very different. And, and just, to, just to say, when I speak, I'm speaking just specifically of the Oxbridge type of school, because sure. not all universities in England are, are the same. Right. Um, but um, as I was there as a postgraduate, so as a, as a graduate student, um, I didn't work exclusively just within my college. Um, so actually, let me back up even further. So sure. Cambridge is like the United States and it consists of like 30 autonomous colleges, right? So we have 30 different states. Um, and so if you're to go to Cambridge as an undergrad, your academics are primarily, are entirely through your college. Gotcha. So, it, so you're specifically at Trinity College. Right. All of your supervisors and all of your academics are in that specific college. At the postgraduate level, it's university-wide. So they have the Faculty of Music, which is just the Department of Music. Gotcha. Um, and so even though I lived at Trinity College and all of my life stuff was kind of rooted in the college, um, my academics were through the university. So one of my supervisors um, was Edward Wickham, who's at St. Catherine's College. Oh. Um, our primary conducting study was with Stephen Layton, who is, of course, at Trinity College. But we had two other um, conducting faculty, one, the one at Clare College and one at Jesus College. Yeah. Um, and the, I guess the, the main function of the course is that over the course of one to two terms, you're going and observing all of the various college choirs and how they function and learning from their various conductors. So it's- Wow, uh, that's so cool. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of perspectives, um, which is incredibly valuable. Um, it can be, sometimes be overwhelming, you know, if you're, cause you're like, oh, this information is great, but so is this in information, but they contradict, I don't know. And times up by 30 here or whatever, or 15. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, holy crap, yeah. So it, so the, just how they function, it, it's, it's entirely different. It's also a lot more self, self-driven. So you don't have, you know, your three credit theory class and your three credit history class that meet you know, these days a week, this time a week, it's, um, it's much less structured. Yeah. Um, you have your supervisor, you have these main projects that you're working on for the duration of your degree. Oh, wow. um, there are seminars and such that you attend for the, cor the course of the degree, but it's not like, um, like, a, oh, I go to this seminar and this instructor gives me a grade. It's right. you do all this stuff. And then at the very end of it, you get like one big test <laughs> and wow. that's, that determines your success. Um, 
sounds highly stressful. Yeah, it is. And so you have to, you know, it takes a lot more focus and uh, responsibility early on when you, you're not being held accountable. Right. Every step of the way. Right. Yeah. You're just expected to do it. Yeah. So what were some of those seminar courses that you are like, I guess, to again, parrot, what were some of, what was some of the coursework? Parrot, well, parrots being parrot, and they're, they're some of the more memorable ones. Cause there are a lot, but Andrew Parrot came in and did a, um, a Monteverdi Vesper seminar. Wow. Um, that was paired with this um, sort of like a singing, you know, we had the, we had the, the instruments and the the scholars playing the instruments and then a variety of us singing through things at, from his edition. Oh, wow. Um, while we were learning all this stuff, which was just absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, holy um, crap. I'm yeah. so jealous, that's amazing. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of stuff, a lot of it was focused mostly on English choral music, um, a lot of history, understanding the church and its ties to the monarchy and yeah. how that progressed, um, so. And like yeah. how it affected music, I'm sure. And yeah, and like everything. you know how you could like you know going back to like the the Protestant versus the Catholic, and and seeing those changes reflected in the music, and um, a lot of it tied to like the cathedral, because of course the, the colleges, um, the the choirs are all chapel based. Right. Right. Yeah. But they do services. Would they do even song services every day, or do they do it? A certain amount of times per week or once it depended, it depended on the college so each college had its own chapel right. um so like trinity college choir for example is a, you know very well known um yeah. you know they had certain even songs per week i think they had three or four services per week gotcha. um i sang my third term because that was the only term where our schedules allowed us to like regularly perform with a group with the sydney Sus sussex chapel choir Gotcha. And they did like two or three even songs a week, and then they did a, a Compline service, which was like all Latin, like reading the, uh, you know, the super old school like yeah, the and stuff, which I scores and stuff, and yeah, that was like being tossed into the deep end because I'd never done that before. Yeah, <laughs> it was like not only are you going to sight read this in the middle of a service, you're not going to be able to read it. <laughs> So <laughs> yeah. yeah, taking your musicianship level to a whole the whole other level because yeah, and and that's probably one of the largest differences. Um, just like that affects everything when it comes to the difference between like a university choir in the United States versus you know one of these college choirs at an Oxbridge school is that they're they're um, you know they're church driven. Right. So you have these three services a week that you have to perform for. You can't do the same music every week. Right. Um, right. And then maybe you rehearse two other times on top of that. Like you're talking about a massive amount of music. Yeah. Um, so just the, the reading ability of the singers has to be up through the roof. Right. So here, here, like at Missouri State, I'll accept someone into one of our choirs that maybe doesn't have a lot of experience reading music. Right. Because we, yeah, we have the the luxury to spend time teaching them how to do that. Right. Where it's like because it, we're not performing three times a week. <laughs> right. Exactly. So in my mind, it's kind of like I talk about it a lot with to my students, and I probably talked about it on the podcast before. Of it's almost like you think of it, our 
American education, like higher education system would be something akin to like a musical theater production where you, you have one performance and you have, you know, this many rehearsals, whereas the ratio of rehearsal to performance for over there seems like it's much more like an athletic team. You have like two or three games a week and you have a practice in between, like that's about it. You know, you're, you're performing or playing all the time and it just trains that reading language into your head though. So yeah, and I mean, it makes sense why they're such good readers. Cause well, exactly. Cause it's, and you know, I, I say this to my students, like the only way to get better at sight singing is by sight singing. Like yeah. the more music you read and the more notes you see, the more, right. you know, the more things you'll be able to sing. And so over there you have these students who've gone up through this cathedral system. who have right. just been, you know, for five or six years on end have been doing like four or five services a week. Yeah. And they've just seen so much music that by the time they reach 17 or 18, they can read anything. Right, right. It's not, it's not that there was a system in place that taught them how to do it. It's just from doing it so much. Right, right. You can't not like physically, they just will. <laughs> and so then when, you, when you're when you like an American coming over who's, you know, had really the dutiful Kodai and right, right. Solfege the heck out of something, but then you're plopped into the situation where you're literally sight singing in every service, um, which is terrifying and exhilarating, um, but terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You you learn a lot really fast because you have to. So what are besides? I mean, I mean the obvious of just being able to read, but what else? What else do you feel like that did for your singing? And therefore then for your conducting, performing um, that often. You know, there are pros and cons to, to that. And yeah. I spent a lot of my time after I left, of course, reflecting on my time there. And it, it just helped sharpen my priorities just in regards to like my approach of teaching choir, yeah. um, like holistically. Uh, you know, it's, you learn how to read quickly, you learn how to, um, to, to not let the, the physical manifestation of anxiety, like um, tension, for example. Right, right. You, you have to deal with it. Otherwise, you know, after one or two services of just being like totally freaked out, like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna mess up and it's gonna be embarrassing. You have no voice because you've just like shredded. Yeah. I have so, sympathetic tension right now. Just you my throat's like dancing up. I'm not even making a sound. <laughs> You're like, oh my God. And then of course I'm a soprano. Um, right, right. And, no. <laughs> and I was, I learned a lot about my own voice actually, because my, before I was, I went over there, my personal choral aesthetic, I tended to prefer a much um, lighter, leaner soprano sound mm -hmm. um, that you you know, you typically hear in, in a British choir. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I was over there, I was plopped next to these types of sopranos. Um, and I found myself trying to, to, to make that sound when my voice isn't necessarily <laughs> like that. Right, right. Um, and so I very quick, like just very quickly realized um, and it just reinforced the importance of healthy singing at all times. Yeah, that's amazing. So when you you talked about your how it helped hone your priorities in terms of holistically 
mm-hmm. as a conductor and as an educator, what, what do you feel like some of those main priorities are then that you kind of nailed down after that experience? Um, I mean, like I just said, the biggest one is just technique. Yeah. Um, that before anything else that, you know, the instrument has to be functioning properly because we can talk about intonation and tone quality and all those other things that conductors talk about. Um, but if, if your students aren't singing well, it doesn't matter because those things are never going to sound good. <laughs> yeah. So real. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, that's just like the absolute baseline, like nothing else can happen beyond that. Um, and as a singer myself going through those various pains with like, oh, I want to make this type of sound, but I can't do it healthily. Right. It just, uh, yeah, it really helped that. Yeah, another big difference um, between that type of choir, um, I remember when I was over there at some, at some times feeling a bit like it was a machine. Right. Glorious machine, right? Because you're just churning out all of this incredible music. Um, which is really beneficial to just be ex- being exposed to that much. Right. Um, but on the other hand, it was missing the those other aspects of choir that I love. The you know building relationships mm. and you know the process of really um, fine tuning a piece of music over an extended period um, yeah. and all the benefits that come from that process and building an ensemble and you know, yeah. having, having parties and well, I guess, you know, they have parties over there too, but. <laughs> but probably not the same, right? Right. Yeah. It's just, uh, there d- didn't feel to be as much of a focus on that, um, that developmental side of things because right. you couldn't, it was just the nature of what it is. Um, whereas here, you know, we focus so much on building the student's voice and building them as a person, um, teaching them empathy and teaching them how to communicate with each other. Um, You know, so many of these really important kind of 21st century life uh, skills. Yeah. And I, I I realized after my experience there that I, that I love that and I have to have that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that totally comes across. So I did a, I was in the, the group, from BYU that went to London for six weeks. I think we met up with you or, or something. Were you there? Yeah, I was, I, there. I, I was off doing my own thing. I was just kind of like- I probably, I might've like seen you in passing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, um, and I remember thinking like, even in performances of the pro choirs versus the pro choirs here, uh, you feel, you can feel that difference without being without being able to put it into words I didn't really understand but that that's kind of what I gathered too is there's a lot more like besides just the black dots on the page there's a lot more to it that you know we may focus on in the quote-unquote American perspective or paradigm and Mm -hmm. the the Brits kind of have this other paradigm and, and I love kind of marrying the two together and, and taking the best from both worlds and creating this, this new thing. And, and I think that that's, that's part of it is, is understanding how do you connect as you sing with the people next to you and, and, uh, yeah. and, and that, you know, just because we're, you know, at 
an American university, that doesn't mean we can't shove tons of music down our students. <laughs> yeah, well, and, I, and, and interesting point, I had a, one of the interviews I did for this was with Chris Gabitas from the King Singers. Okay. He talked about that same concept of the rehearsal to performance ratio. Mm-hmm. So then like the next day I was like, okay, this is bold. And I told my chamber singers at the high school, like, we're going to learn one piece and we're going to perform it in four days and we're going to make a video and then we're not going to touch it again until the day of the concert. They're like, what? Like, so we're trying it. It's kind of experimental. I mean, the COVID time is a great time to try kind of new things anyway, since everything. So, and it's, we've done something almost identical, like this semester just like with you know, with no intent of ever really performing them, just to be able to throw it out in a rehearsal and say, all right, we're going to read this. Wow, like, cool. Here, well, here how we go. Has gone? Like, tell, um... it, uh, you know, it's been fun. Um, it's been a strange semester just with like the lack of the normal structure, like right. not having a performance every six or seven weeks, but it has been a blessing. We have been able to focus a lot more on developing each student's individual, like reading skills and their musicianship so yeah. instead of having to spoon feed out of necessity because we have a concert in a week and this has to sound good, right. um, they can be forced to develop those, those skills on their own. Um, and even though it can feel tedious initially, sure. at this point now, towards the end of the semester, it's absolutely glorious. So we um, recorded a piece for Walton, let's say, actually it was yesterday. Um, it, it wasn't a very difficult piece. Um, but because it wasn't very difficult, I was like, you know what? We're not really going to rehearse this. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah awesome. Maybe we looked at it once and then we went to record it yesterday and out of sheer necessity, like, like they know what the, the expectation is. Yeah. They had the, they just made it happen. That's awesome. It was, it was awesome. So. Yeah. I feel like there's something about that regardless of, you know, American versus English or whatever just that that sense of urgency that requires a heightened sense of focus anyway Mm -hmm. because I would always find that the week before the concert they learn 10 times as much than they do the two months leading up to the final week so how can we create recreate that sense of urgency somehow you know and it's still a work in progress and I'll fiddle with it but those kind maybe just here we're gonna sing this over Uh, the next two days and just having those moments and it's great to to be able to balance those so it's not urgency all the time right because uh, you don't want to fatigue them and you do want to to have those slower moments when you can sit and talk about um you know something important or like the message of a piece yeah, um, or you know even especially i do it again i do this too of you need a, do we need a life lessons day because they're like their faces are just heavy and like they can't I'm just like okay school is a lot let's just chat <laughs> you know yeah I, I said that yesterday and I felt bad after I did but you know they're wearing their masks so I'm like guys like you all look dead inside <laughs> like I'm just seeing your eyes and there's like it's like nothing yeah just glaze and <laughs> I was like I understand yeah but <laughs> that's really fascinating and I think that that's something that that you've helped me even just in this moment really even more solidify is creating urgency because that helps heighten their skills in from this direction of just like the performance and the urgency will force you into the deep end 
and then taking it slower and, and coming at it from the shallow end and really focusing on technique and how to read and, and those types of things. I think it's a cool balance to kind of strike the two. Yeah. And it's good experience for them. Um, we all know that when you're like on the spot and your nerves are just exploding, right. um, the, the sensation of doing what you need to do in that moment is totally, diff totally different from when you're comfortable in your rehearsal surrounded by like the people you feel safe with. Right, right. So then if you can kind of recreate those situations and, you know, get them used to feeling terrified. Right, practice feeling terrified. <laughs> yeah, they're never not gonna be nervous. Right, exactly. But it's a great life skill because they're gonna like, regardless of what field you go into, you know, you're gonna have a huge conference presentation. You're gonna have a really important phone call, like something that really matters and you're going to be nervous and you have to be able to function regardless right. of your anxiety. So it's, it's just. Right, like these Zoom interviews that I've been doing, every single one, I'm like, I can't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking to, talking to so and so. Like it, it really is. It just gets kind of like shell shock. And like these people I've heard about and studied and listened to and seen pictures of, and now I'm like, I have to like be me. <laughs> and they have to see on Zoom, me. which is already so awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Oh man. So that leads me to another like besides just tone going back to maybe some of your priorities what is the uh, i i go back and forth on this a lot and i have a really hard time uh, mm -hmm. because i feel like when i'm sight reading or when i'm still relatively unfamiliar with the music my voice technique no matter how much i want it to be i'm still listening and i'm still mm -hmm. like thinking about what notes coming next mm -hmm. so i've heard some voice teachers tell their students like don't sight read ever just like learn it really well and then start to really sing it yeah but I don't know I don't know so what what do you how do you balance those two things of the technique coming first and the and the reading inflicting that versus the other way or yeah I mean there's so many variables that affect this like each yeah. student's abilities make this different and then of course um, like just the situation you find yourself in, like if you're, if you can rehearse something like the same measure for five weeks um, right. versus, yeah. Um, you know, I try, I, I say this to my students all the time. Um, I don't know if they believe me, but I always say like, I would much rather hear a really, really loud, confident, but horrifically incorrect pitch um, than something that's correct. But like, really like timid mm, uh, or, yeah. wimpy, or like off the voice and like hell um, tense. Yeah. So I think, I think a lot of it is just fostering an environment where it's safe yeah. to constantly make mistakes Yeah. Um, because then if they hear themselves and then of course, then um, having taught them to, to fix those mistakes themselves so that when they do make that mistake, you know, they sing the wrong pitch they don't just continue to sing the wrong thing until they're told otherwise, but they hear it, they circle it. Um, it you know, it's a delicate balancing act. Yeah. I think, because I think if they're, if they feel secure and safe and they're not concerned about making a mistake, especially in those, those early stages of reading, right. Um, you know, that they'll tend to sing more healthily. Yeah. Yeah, but so of course, kind of start to tiptoe into doing both. Yeah, and it's it's just difficult with like young singers because they're 
always timid. So, so much of it is just, you know, getting them to down the walls a little bit. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's, that's tricky. But I think if, if I had to choose between one or the other, yeah, you know, it, the reading is still, I think, secondary to the, to the technical aspects. Yeah. It's just that it's all, it all really doesn't matter so much if you're not singing well. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true, man. Yeah. And I have a lot, oh man. Okay. I have to move (laughs) on to some other things, but I, I, that that makes me think of a lot of other things. uh, Just scenarios that I ran into yesterday in class of, yeah. of how, how they can start to, to do both of those and, and the healthy singing will help them hear it better. Exactly. Right? Like, like, cause you, you, you don't, you not only build like an internal aural thing, especially if you're singing something like parallel thirds that are kind of inherently tricky, mm-hmm. you go off of, okay, well, these notes, I know when I get to a C, most of the time a C feels like this. Okay. So I got my ear helping me find the right pitch and my voice helping me find the right pitch. And if you're not doing the voice part healthily, then that's going to feel different every day. It already kind of does if you're, but, but even more so it'll make that muscle memory not happen the same way. Exactly. I also think sight reading as a group is, is just a totally different thing from reading as, you know, like a, a soloist. Right. Um, you know, cause if you're surrounded by other voices and if you know those voices and what their abilities are, then it, it kind of becomes this sort of like partnership, um, yeah. where, and it's, it's hard to explain it and until you're actually doing it, but it's like, you know, you feel like the others around you are, are helping and, you know, yeah. at other times you step up and, yeah. um, you know, if two thirds of the group sings the correct thing and then, you know, you're off in some other place and then you hear it and you're like oh right right oh oh my (laughs) gosh I totally just sang a fourth and that's that's a fifth yeah exactly and and you can start to hear how things line up vertically and how your line feels melodically yeah and and just having those other voices with you just inherently provides some confident confidence yeah I of course, in the COVID times when everyone's spread out, right, and it makes <laughs> you can't hear anyone else. So, <laughs> and that's what we've been battling this semester. Yeah, so. and then again, we have a whole discussion about like how do we help build confidence and break down the walls, which <laughs> which maybe I'll have you on again uh, in the future in a couple months or whatever. I would love to have you on again, and and we can talk about some of those things. But yeah. but in this first to kind of keep going on this on this British versus America, not that it's a contest really, but this kind of compare and contrast <laughs> yeah. um, thing. You, you t- I mean, and you hear it and you look any, any British choir CD that they put out, it's primarily British music mm-hmm. and then a lot of early music. What, what was, did, how did your relationship to maybe early or Renaissance music change? by being over there or, and what kind of what are your perspectives on early music or Renaissance music? You know, my, I, my appreciation had already been kind of, uh, sparked. Yeah. Um, Cause uh, I, I sang with a, a number of professional choirs while I was teaching high school. 
Oh, awesome. Uh, that ex- that exposed, exposed me to a lot of things. For example, singing the Monteverde, Monteverde Vespers for the first time, I, th- I was like 23 or 24. That's amazing. Um, I remember first looking at the score being like, oh, this is so boring. You know, typical like 20 something. Right. Um, and then by the end, like, I swear all I listened to in my car for like a year was the John Elliott Gardner recording. Oh, um, so good. Um, I even got pulled over once. <laughs> the Dixie Dominus, because I was just like, yeah, this is awesome. Literally rocking out to Monteverde Monteverde and getting pulled over. (laughs) That is the greatest story ever. And I was already kind of an Anglophile um, because one of the other groups I sang with a lot, um, the guy programmed a lot of like James McMillan and Benjamin Britten. And so I was already like kind of obsessed. I've never Um, heard Howells. An Anglophile? I've never heard that term. I am identifying with myself more now oh, that, yeah. that word because that is definitely me <laughs> yeah it's, it's definitely a thing um and so when I'm over there you know I mean that's their just their cathedral tradition they sing right. the sacred music that was writ- written for those spaces um and especially when you're doing it in those spaces it just continued continued to open my eyes as to how exciting that music can be if it's you know if it's done right and that not everything like just because it's by Monteverdi doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be exciting or great. Right, right. Um, it's it's no different than now. Like you know, not everything by twenty first century composer X. Right, is fill in the blank. Wonderful. Right. Yeah. Um, talk about it. I've talked about it when I've had composers on about they just write a ton. Not all of it's great, you know, and it it makes sense then that these composers we've kind of iconicized. Mm-hmm. would have the same experience yeah and just because it's a piece that's performed a lot doesn't even mean you necessarily have to like it like right. there's so much out there um that's not regularly performed but we have access to because the internet right um and i you know i tell my students this like you just have to sit down and find it and it's it's really tedious um yeah. but those things that just you know the things that make you get a speeding ticket like <laughs> absolutely that's what you need to find <laughs> yeah so and but you have to like you know you have to be familiar with style and yeah know how to like it's with it's just with anything knowing how to to find what makes it special and then bring it to life yeah i love that what are if you could think off the top of your head some of those maybe nuggets of composers or pieces that you found that's tedious because that's the point of this podcast that I try to do is to find yeah. things that that maybe aren't so because again I I have no problem doing the tedious just searching <laughs> I do it all the time but but you know to to help bring that to so it's not so tedious for everyone can bring it off the page I guess yeah you mean like specific works yeah or or, or specific composers or even if you you know, things that you thought, who is this person? And you're like, whoa, this is actually amazing. Oh, goodness gracious. There are so many. And I just like, I have bookmarked, like, you know, there are just like hundreds of websites that have spreadsheets of yeah, you know, all the various not so well-known composers. I've actually been recently, because one of our graduate students is doing a master's recital in the spring with the women's chorus. Oh, awesome. Um, and that's actually a, a challenging um finding that type of music for for treble voices 
right. um, is something I've always struggled with because it's either not meant, it wasn't, it wasn't composed for treble voices and it's been transcribed by someone um, and it's just never as satisfying. Right. Um, or it's just really boring. Right. Um, so so the, the process of finding those works that have worked. So I, I remember doing, um, when I taught high school, the Nicola Porpora's Magnificat, mm. um, which, uh, sorry, my. No, no, that's fine. Um, I remember hearing the final movement of it done at an all state when I was like 17. Yeah. And as a high school student, I was like, that was hot. What was that? Yeah. I just thought it was so cool. But I, yeah. you know, I didn't know what a Magnificat was. I didn't know anything about anything. Just heard. So I forgot about it. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, oh, that's so cool and fiery. Um, and then some years went by and then I was teaching high school and I, I stumbled across this and it just blew my mind. Um, and it's exciting. And there are a lot of works like that. So like Vivaldi, for example, like he has a lot of nuggets for treble voices. Um, he taught at a girl's school, right? Yeah, and like, like he wrote so much. Yeah, and it's just a pro like you don't just necessarily have to do the La Damus Te duet from Gloria if you have a, a treble choir. Like, right, right. There's a lot out there that's a lot more like nothing against that. Um, right. There's just there's so much. I know I, I haven't like given you really any specific. No, no, that that's awesome because that, I mean, again, I'll, I'll I'll edit this next five seconds out, but that's what I do. I just take things from the interview and then I go and the composer profile. I'll probably do it on Vivaldi now, and okay. and have a do several pieces that are yeah. treble voices or Corpora. He has he has a yeah, and I'll probably add that one in to another episode that I've done about. Uh, single sex mm. uh, music of early music. Um, yeah. I can focus this one on treble voices and do it on Vivaldi, yeah. maybe add a couple other things, but so that, cool. that stuff works great. And that's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm doing, um, I'm doing the Vivaldi Magnificat with my, I have a like community and student mixed group. Oh, awesome. Um, we're doing that in the spring. So. And well, have you started it already? Oh no, we'll we'll start it. We 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 just are wrapping up the foray requiem, so we'll we'll tackle that in January. <laughs> nice, and that's what we actually here at the high school we do. All choirs combined, we'll do a master work every March. Nice. So we did forays requiem last year. We're oh doing, great! We're doing Mozart this year. We'll see if they're up to it. But Ooh. they're like we did Diasire when. So I did anyway. I've had. I was at Spanish Fork Junior High for four years before I was here at Spanish Fork High School. So okay. most of my own students that I've had since seventh, eighth grade, now uh -huh. and seniors. So we did Diasire in eighth grade, and they're like, they they've literally asked me every year if they can do that song again. I'm like, no. We, I mean, I love Mozart. I fangirl <laughs> Mozart, but no, we can't. But now it's like we're doing Mozart's Requiem, and I thought they were gonna pass out like these. Kids, music nerds are like passing out because of they haven't seen the Kyrie Fugue yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're gonna pass out for a different reason for that. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. So yeah. we'll see how that one pans together. <laughs> but uh, so I guess then to um two two, two last questions I'd say when you're introducing a piece like that, 
even if maybe initially you've you had a reaction or it's an exciting dead composer if you anticipate that they will have a hard time buying in what are some things you do whether it's early music or not now i guess this is just buy-in in general what are some things you do to help kind of generate more buy-in from the group and excitement about a certain piece yeah you know um so so i mean a huge thing is when i'm programming um i especially now like if i'm not just absolutely in love with a piece and if i anticipate that it's going to be a tough sell for my students i i'm i'm really weary of programming especially if we don't have a lot of time it's like i think that you know that ratio of like the amount of time you're putting into it versus what you're going to get out of it yeah um yeah and a lot of the time it's like well you know if i have to spend all of our time convincing them to like this then maybe it's just not the right piece for this moment and a lot of that just depends on the the ensemble in any given year it changes vastly like i'm doing things now that if i had attempted my first year like it would have just been a disaster Right. I've been like, I hate this. Um, <laughs> sucks. <laughs> yeah. Why are we doing this? It's terrible. You know, if they feel that way for like a day or two, you know, that's fine. But if they feel like that for like six weeks, um, then I, you know, you have to kind of question like, maybe I shouldn't have programmed this. Right. So, so a lot of it is really just knowing them individually and as a group and not selecting anything that's going to be too terribly much of a stretch. But of course, you know, if, if it is something that I know is going to take a little extra, um, you know, persuading there's, you know, a hook, the hook, right. like the, the, that, that sell, that thing that you sell that piece with it, it can take so many different forms. Sometimes it's simply just letting them know why, like why I love something so much. Yeah. Um, just, sharing with them a personal connection, or maybe it's finding an aspect of that piece, whether it be text related or history related that can spark some sort of lively discussion or debate. Yeah. Um, usually after a conversation like that, there's buy-in of some kind. Sure. Um, even if they, f- they still feel like it's musically tedious, um, they have this other connection to the piece that kind of gets them going. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's just playing a recording so yeah. they can get you know, get a, a picture of what it's eventually going to sort of be like. Right, right, right. A lot of them just aren't, uh, you know, you know, they're, they're you know, 18 years old right. and can, you know, struggling to read music. They're not going to look at this crazy, like, eight-part thing and be able to, like, hear it in their minds what it's eventually going to sound like. Right. Um, so when they're struggling to count those insane rhythms and like, why is she making us do this? Um, right. If they hear, if they hear that, like that, you know, the whole picture, sometimes it makes it a lot easier to then go back to the, the tiny little pieces that they're struggling with. Cause you, yeah. you know what you're building towards. Yeah. 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 That's- and I know some people are fans of playing recordings, but you know, I think there's nothing wrong with it. You're not, it's not like you're saying, okay, practice with this and seeing it exactly how they're singing right, it. It's right. just, hey, here's what this sounds like. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I've actually, not, well, when you were talking about that actually and talking about having a lively discussion and 
I've actually realized that something I've done is <clears throat> I tell them where it, what the theme of the whole concert is, especially mm -hmm. in like a high school setting where it's like, there's five other choirs at this concert. Or yeah. It's like, okay, this is the theme. These are all the songs. This is what the other choirs are singing. This is kind of where yours fits in. So this one kind of, this has its place and I put it here on purpose. And sometimes that's help. I'd never really thought of that that would create buy-in, but I do that all the time. And so I'm sure it does, <laughs> just like just like having a, dis a discussion or debate about some kind of concept and um, yeah. the meaning of the text or the historical background, the things that you mentioned. And Absolutely. So, so like, for example, we're, we, we're doing the um, Mia Makarov butterfly. Oh. Um, so the, the S S S A A A there's a, there's a, a treble version. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. And, you know, in the midst of a pandemic when everyone's super spread out and, um, you know, you're doing something with a lot of Debussy and a lot of different things going on in different voice parts. Um, that's a piece that initially could have been super tedious. Um, but we, you know, we talked about the text of the piece and this idea of this, you know, this butterfly emerging from her cocoon. Yeah. Um, she's her whole life. She's been in this dark place her whole life right. and she emerges and she has one day, like yeah. this one day to just like live and love. And yeah. just like, just talking about that, like, I mean, it was over. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's they, awesome. They were hooked. Oh, favorite piece of the semester. You can already Absolutely. tell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. That's great. So when you're, I guess the last question is, is when you're, when you're putting together a program, what do you, what kind of things, I mean, we take all, all of us take all the things into consideration, I'm sure. Yeah. What are some things that you kind of has, have as your main focuses at the forefront of your mind as you're programming a concert? Um, you know, I mean, there, like you said, there's so many different facets. A lot of it is just you know, you're creating either it's a story or um, like that flow that you get from piece to piece to piece. Um, finding, I mean, diversity is a huge thing. That's, that's right. probably the most, maybe not the most important. I could say everything's the most important. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but, but diversity for, for sure. And just exposing those students to as many different types of music as possible. Right. Um, finding things that I know they're going to be excited about. Um, having a nice balance of, you know, challenging and, you know, easy, easy to easier to accomplish, I suppose. Yeah. Um, all that's kind of gone out the window this semester. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't really program with a concert in mind because, you know, we didn't really have any. Right. So my, my entire motivation was finding things that I knew would be easy to learn enjoyable to sing like in any given day and then things that had messages that just felt relevant to everything that's going on right now yeah so that every day when they come into the classroom you know they're they're not gonna like leave crying because they didn't get their like five measures together <laughs> <laughs> right 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 um you know they're gonna feel uplifted and as connected to each other as possible even with face masks on right, and ready to kind of tackle yeah yeah like hey everything's gonna be okay like we're still here together and we're singing um yeah well that's yeah. awesome i think yeah and that's the hardest thing is so how do you to follow up on that how do you take 
I guess in a normal year, but even this year too, but does historical music basically AKA dead people or, or, or even more specifically than Renaissance, but more broadly dead composers, does it play a specific role in your program or is it just, is, is just the whole choral canon before you and you tell the story with whatever makes the most sense? Or do you try to fit like one obligatory dead person in there or not? Yeah, it tends to be more the, the latter where, you know, you have the entire canon before you and now you're piecing together something that makes sense in that semester with the students that you have. Yeah. Um, so for example, like I've mentioned with the, the trouble groups, um, it's difficult to find like unaccompanied Renaissance motets that work well, that would be uh, accessible to the kind of ensemble that I have. Right. Of uh, so it's just a matter of finding the right types of things. Um, I try so hard not to fall into that, like, oh, we have to have our token dead person. <laughs> right. But I think we're all guilty of that. I mean, oh, yeah. Even me, who am like, yeah a dead like fangirl for dead people you know like, yeah, it's like oh, i have my mendelssohn little i have my little part song like we're good yeah uh, i try try not to do that um so like it's it's a lot easier with my mixed ensemble to sure. to not have to worry so much um because the i guess and it's more about genre and less about time period mm. um and what's accessible what, so some specifics on that, go further on that. What do you mean exactly by genre uh, versus time period? Because I think that that's pretty relevant and I think a lot of us do that. Yeah, so like if you're thinking of like a motet, for example, like yeah. unaccompanied motet, um, I mean, really it's just anything unaccompanied, like that's already yeah. gonna be a lot more challenging. Right. Um, or if you're you know talking about a cantata, that um, is just going to tend to be more polyphonic. Yeah. You know, polyphony in general is is going to be more challenging, especially for students who aren't strong readers. Right. Um, and so I tend to find, I mean, of course, it, it does also have some, some to do with time period, but um, they're just genres. And like that certain, with certain groups, I just... It's yeah. hard to find things that are going to work for them. So like mass, for example. Yeah. Um, right. You know, especially with like a trouble choir. Right. Uh, Mozart didn't write, <laughs> didn't write many SSAA masses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I can count it on like. And like you can transcribe the Haydn masses for trouble voices until the cows come home. But, you know, it's. it's but just, like it earlier is not the same. Yeah. 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 The same. And you know there are some motets um, composed for trouble voices that are unaccompanied, but you know when placed next to their um, mixed unaccompanied counterparts, mm. you know I don't want to do something just because it falls into this category. Yeah. Um, if it's if it's not exciting or if it's not going to be good experience. Yeah. Then, we're not going to do it. Yeah, yeah no, because then, if, especially if it's, if you have that feeling going into it of like, oof, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you guys got <laughs> this. I love this. We all got that. You know, that's, you had to sell almost every piece, even the easy one. Yeah. I learned that the hard way when I was teaching in high school with my, with a women's course there. I was like, oh, we have this little three-part motet, you know, it was like 16th century. 
Yeah. I didn't really like it that much. It was kind of boring, but I was like, but we should do this for contest because we have to be well-rounded. <laughs> um, right. And it just, you know, it wasn't a great experience. Right. And they, it's the, the groans, audible yeah. groans when you say, take yeah, they're like, take, take out this piece. No. <laughs> gonna die. Yeah. 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 Well, um, that has all been super fascinating. And I feel like I understand a lot more about the, the kind of American lens versus the British lens, uh, a little bit different from someone who has been over there in a capacity to study it, but is primarily from here. Because yeah. I interviewed some people who are from there and have been here occasionally to kind of study it and then go back. Yeah. It's really fascinating to get the other side of the coin. And I think that um, things you talked about, you know, building the connection and, and kind of building the community and the audience and creating these experiences through the music is definitely one of our strengths that we can kind of keep. But, but having those, those perspectives from across the pond, I think is so, I'm just so jealous. <laughs> it is saying, okay, you oh, should go. You should go. Oh, man, I want to so bad. Thanks so much, Aaron, for coming on. I, I really do appreciate the time because I know even during COVID that it's probably insanely busy as a professor. And so it's been a real pleasure. I could geek out about choral music like all day. Okay, the Red Priest, Antonio Vivaldi. When most people think of Vivaldi, they think of, you know, his his string uh, orchestral works. But he wrote some great choral music, and we're going to talk about some of these pieces that are um, kind of not as well known, and I think are really really cool. So he was a Baroque composer. If we want to, if we want to kind of confine him to a time period. Um, he was ordained a priest most likely against his will because, uh, you know, according to historical records, he used to, like, fake sick all the time in, like, the middle of mass. <laughs> Just like, oh, I don't feel good. <laughs> Just, like, get up and leave. Um, so that's kind of weird. So he ended up teaching later in his life at a girl's orphanage which was, and he wrote a ton of music for female voices and soloists and things because of that experience. He wrote a ton, and then he was writing elsewhere as well. But uh, if there was this young singer that he, he had known named Anna, and her sister ended up living with him, which is kind of scandalous. He claimed she was only a housekeeper and a good friend, but totally suspicious Batman because that's weird, back in that day, obviously. An unknown scandal led to his being censured by the church and ultimately leaving the priesthood. I have no, we don't know what that is, but holy conspiracy, Batman. He wrote over 500 sonatas for instrumental ensembles. 500. Are you kidding me with this? I don't, there's not even 500 notes a lot of them were said to be 
kind of educational compositions for a lot of his students. But that's why his music is so approachable for student musicians, both singers and string players, because he was writing it. And you can see there's a lot of really like pedagogically sound principles in terms of his melodic line and how the harmonies line up and in his texture that even his more complicated music still has this air of simplicity and cleanliness almost. It's like very clean. And even though it was the Baroque time and they were into insane ornamentation, he wasn't stodgy by any means, but he he had this pedagogical lens that I think you can see in his writing. So a beginning piece... I would say, would be from his Gloria. Well, uh, there's two. Two movements of his Gloria that I think could be done by like a smaller ensemble, a children's choir or a junior high choir, uh, anywhere from there and above. Laudamus te. And that's two parts. The the parallel thirds are kind of tricky. Don't... So maybe this shouldn't be a beginning piece because parallel thirds are hard. But you can use solfege to kind of teach those parallel thirds and how to begin singing parallel thirds because they come back so often in history. Um, the, the vocal range is not ext- super extreme either. Domine Deus is a great soprano solo, and you could totally have that be sung by a, a children's choir. And it's in compound meter, so you can teach compound meter and you can use it to teach solfege because it's diatonic like 95 percent of the time and it's a little bit slower so it's like five minutes but that makes the melismas doable so it you know you could probably cut it down and but it it'd be a really good teaching piece for a couple of those principles an intermediate piece would be then the rest of his gloria any individual movement is great but you know the the one that everyone knows is right we, we all know that uh, holy perfect singing i just did batman um but the, there are so many other movements that are just as approachable and just as singable uh, that don't get done very often so look it up it's so great Letatus sum is a homophonic piece, and you can use this to teach phrasing so well. There's all these really great moments of implied Baroque articulation, and it should be accompanied by strings if you have the resources to do that, but it could easily be doubled by the piano, uh, no problem, again, because it's, it's homophonic throughout the piece. Really great, simple, like I said, simple, clean, doable, and you can, you know, you could do it with like a lower level intermediate choir all the way up to professional group, and the more advanced, the more artistry you can really put in there and, and really make it shine. Um, for a more advanced piece, I would say from his Dixit Dominus, he wrote a lot of, a lot of larger works, and so... Um, you can find these larger works all on CPDL. Um, but Gloria Patri, it's dance-like, fun, buoyant, quick 
melismas that are a little bit tricky in the vocal technique department. And it's really typical of Vivaldi's compound meter writing. And then Laura Jerusalem, which is double choir and double orchestra. It'd be very cool. Very cool. It's difficult to keep together and it moves super quick. So if you could find, if you're, if you have access or you're performing in a really great space that could, you know, has balconies or has that kind of double choir thing, you could do some really fun stuff with, with uh, Lauda Jerusalem. There's so much, again, 500 sonatas. I mean, those are for instrumental works, but he still wrote a crap ton of music. And most of it is really good for being able to teach some sort of principle. So if you're looking to use a historical piece to teach your group something or to, to get your group better at, a, at, at staying together rhythmically or singing with a, a less heavy singing mechanism or to sing with really great phrasing and articulation or whatever, you can use Vivaldi as a really simple way to do that. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into the show today. I really enjoyed our discussion with Dr. Plisko. Hopefully you got some resources to look up for doing sacred music in secular settings and that you learned a little bit about Vivaldi and now you have kind of more tools in the tool belt. Be sure to like and subscribe. Leave a comment like, holy sackbutt consort, Batman. We'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.